Okay, this morning we're going to be going back to Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. We finished Revelation 19 last week as we looked at the campaign and battle of Armageddon as Christ's second coming happens on the earth. And this morning as we get into chapter 20, we see events that immediately uh, immediately follow those things which we looked at last week and that happen at the second coming of Christ right after the battle of Armageddon. So we're going to take chapter 20 and read just the first six verses this morning. And this is an introduction to what we would know as the Millennial Kingdom. Now, I've mentioned the Millennial Kingdom many times as we've studied Revelation. This is kind of the culmination of everything that's happening and what it's leading up to. But here in Revelation 20, we have a quick summary of this thousand-year reign of Christ. And so we're going to read about that starting in Revelation 20, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 6. So if you want to follow along, the Bible says this, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Let's stop there. We'll take a minute and pray and then look at what God has for us today. Father, we thank you again for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We read that already this morning. And so even as we study together today, you have something prepared for us to teach us and to guide us in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and open our minds, open our hearts to receive the truth today that you have for us. But, Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified in this time, that your name would be exalted in what we do and what is said And Lord, in that way, I need your help and your strength. I need your spirit to fill me and to guide me, to help me speak truth as your word proclaims, so that we might hear from you and be challenged by you. And Lord, again, we give you the glory in this time. May you accomplish your purpose. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I said, Revelation chapter 20 begins with a quick summary of the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth that we call the Millennial Kingdom. It begins right after the Great Tribulation, which has just ended in chapter 19 with the Battle of Armageddon. Now, at this point in history, we want to understand where we are in the chronology of Revelation, all of the events that are going to take place, because In chapter 19, we see the return of Christ to earth. That's the second coming. It's not the rapture. That's the second coming. And that's at the end of the tribulation. He has, as we saw last week, delivered all of the believing Jews, the remnant, as we call them, and the believing Gentiles who are still alive on the earth from the power of Satan and from the power of the Antichrist. And we saw as Christ came, he destroyed the armies of the Antichrist, literally destroying them with the breath of his mouth or his word as he went from Basra up to Jerusalem. And then he delivered all the saints at that same moment. And so at this point, the battle of Armageddon is over. Christ is victorious. The power of Satan on earth has been broken, which is the preliminary to Christ setting up his kingdom. All of that had to be accomplished. And remember, the Antichrist himself and the false prophet were literally plucked up from the earth and cast into the lake of fire alive, and there they will remain for a thousand years, and not just for the thousand years 
coming in Christ's reign, but for eternity. They are the first inhabitants of the eternal death of the lake of fire. And so as we come into chapter 20, that's where we are in this series of events. And chapter 20, in the first six verses, it gives a quick summary of the millennial kingdom, which is interesting because this is basically all we have about the millennial kingdom in the entire book of Revelation. Now, if this is the culminating event, the highlight of human history, you'd think that there would be more. We have all this in Revelation about the judgment of God, chapters 6 through 18. We have a whole chapter devoted to the return of Christ and the battle that he wages right at that moment. We have the introduction at the beginning of Revelation of Christ as the glorified Lord. We have the letters to the churches. We have two chapters basically devoted to the throne room of God, and then we have six verses to the Millennial Kingdom. And that's like the greatest event that is recorded here. Well, there's some reasons here that God doesn't include a lot about the Millennial Kingdom in Revelation. Okay, and it's twofold. Number one, the majority of the Old Testament and even a great deal of the New Testament focus on and explain the kingdom of Christ and all that's going to happen in that kingdom during the 1,000 years. So if you want to find out, and we will, what the millennial kingdom is all about and what's going to happen and what it's going to be like, read the Bible, not just Revelation, okay? Because there's a great bulk of information about the millennial kingdom starting way back, even in Genesis, and especially as you read through Old Testament prophecy, almost all of that is focused on the millennial kingdom and what's going to happen. And we will look at that in the, in the coming weeks. But that's the first reason, is that a majority of the Bible already talks about the millennial kingdom. We don't need a whole lot here because we've been given all those details before. And remember, this book of Revelation was given to the church, not to the Jews. The millennial kingdom is when the Jews come back and focus. That is their moment, as it were, okay? For several thousand years, the Gentiles have been the focus of God's grace in the church, not just the Gentiles. He's included the Jews in that. But his primary focus in working with mankind was taken off of the Jews um, about the time of Christ's resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And then the church began at Pentecost, 50 days after that. And his focus has been on the church, using the church as his ambassadors and as his lighthouse to bring the truth to the world. Now, that was supposed to be the job of Israel. That's why God chose Israel, to be his chosen nation, to show forth his truth and his light to the Gentiles around them. They failed, and because they failed, God gave us the church. But the church is temporary. The church is not the highlight of everything, okay? And unfortunately, even though we're part of the church, we're not the main event, as it were, okay? We are important to Christ. We are his bride. But when we get to the millennial kingdom, we will be by his side as he rules, but Israel will become the focus again as God promised them. And so because Revelation is given to the church, we don't need a lot of information about the millennial kingdom. Number one, we will already be raptured and with Christ and coming back with him. The millennial kingdom is really, although it's focused on Christ specifically in his reign, it is the highlight of Israel's history. And so that's why we read about it more in the Old Testament. Okay, So we don't need a lot of description here. Now, the second part of this chapter tells us a little bit more what's going to happen to Satan. In verses 7 through 10, we get to the end of the millennial kingdom. Now we're at the end of the thousand years, and we see Satan's return. We read here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, that the angel takes Satan, binds him, and casts him into the pit, and he will remain there for the thousand years. So his influence, as it were, is removed from the earth during the reign of Christ. And the earth will become much like it was in the Garden of Eden. Satan is gone. Everything on earth will be changed. We have a perfect ruler in charge of the, earth, the world, ruling in perfect righteousness. The only 
mar, if you will, during the reign of Christ is that the fallen sin nature of humankind is still existent in those who will be born in that time. That's why Satan is able to rise up an army or raise up an army at the end of that thousand years to rebel against Christ again. But it will fail just like it did all through history. But that's in verses 7 through 10. It tells us what happens to Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom. And then the third part of chapter 20 describes what's called the great white throne judgment when all unbelievers through all of history will be raised up and stand before Christ to receive their final sentence of eternal death. And that's chapter 20. It's not a long chapter. It's not a complicated chapter. But it kind of summarizes everything that's going to happen in that thousand years reign of Christ and then immediately afterwards. And there's some important information in this chapter. But today, what I want to do is give you kind of an introduction to the Millennial Kingdom. I, I, there's no way I could give you all the information about the Millennial Kingdom in one message. It's impossible. Okay, So I'm not going to try. Um, in fact, we're going to spread this out over three or four weeks so we can get a good picture of what the Millennial Kingdom is all about. And we'll go back to the Old Testament prophecy and read that and look at what is told us about the Millennial Kingdom there. Today, I'm just going to give you an introduction to the Millennial Kingdom. Now, I don't know how many of you know much about the Millennial Kingdom of Christ. I mean, obviously, it's a thousand years, okay? But um, the Millennial Kingdom and our understanding of the Millennial Kingdom plays an important part in our doctrine. And actually, I think it's one of the more important doctrines. We're not judging importance versus unimportant doctrines. They're all important, but it ranks among the highest along with the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and even salvation itself. And here's why. Because how you view the millennial kingdom really either determines or is determined by your approach and entire view of Scripture as a whole. Okay? And that's what I want to talk about today is understanding millennial kingdom from what I would call a literal, grammatical very common sense approach to scripture to understand what the millennial kingdom is and not just the millennial kingdom, but to understand that what the Bible teaches us about everything else. And that includes all of the other major doctrines of the church. Now I've read this passage verses one through six, and there's a, uh, uh, this is your quiz for today. There's a phrase that's repeated over and over in that passage. Somebody tell me what that phrase is. Shouldn't be hard because it defines the millennial kingdom. No guessers, huh? Okay, the phrase is 1,000 years. Okay, now I'm going to ask you how many of you believe the millennial kingdom is 1,000 years long? Raise your hands if you believe that the millennial kingdom is 1,000 years long. Okay, why would you believe that? And your answer probably is well, the Bible says it, right? It says a thousand years. Okay, yes. And that's how we should take not just the millennial kingdom, but everything that's in this book, because the Bible says it. Okay, and that's the approach that we should take as we look at Scripture and try to apply it in our lives. The Bible says it, therefore, this is what we accept. Now, unfortunately, with the millennial kingdom and other doctrines, that is not how many people approach it. And that's why today I'm going to give you three different views about the Millennial Kingdom that really are determined by the approach people take to interpreting Scripture and then applying it and understanding how it should be used and, um, and applied in our lives. Okay? So you said you understand a thousand years to be a thousand years because that's what the Bible says. Great. So we're going to start there, and we're going to start with that view of the millennial kingdom, okay? And this is called the premillennial view, and it's all based, all three of these are based on when the millennium happens in relation to the second coming of Christ, okay? So in other words, does Christ come at the beginning of the millennium, at the end of the millennium, some other time, okay? When does Christ actually come back the second time? And your view of the millennial kingdom will determine that as you approach Scripture and interpret it with whatever approach you take. But the first view is what we believe here at Bunker Hill. This is called the premillennial view of the second coming of Christ. Now, 
you may be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, we just read that. Chapter 19 is the second coming. Chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom. Obviously, it happens after Christ comes back. Okay, not everybody believes that. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But this is the premillennial view, which believes that Christ's second coming, coming will happen before the millennial kingdom begins, and that the millennial kingdom will be a literal 1,000 years. Okay, now all of you just said, that's what I believe. Because we take a literal interpretation of Scripture, we look at what the Scripture says, we understand it in a generally normal grammatical sense, and we say, okay, if that's what it says, that's what it is. Now, as we've gone through Revelation, we've seen specific events that have been detailed through a chronology. It's not all chronologically in order, and I showed you that as we studied Revelation. There are certain chapters that I would call parentheses in the action. Okay, we went through the six seals, and there's a parentheses. And then we had um, the six other judgments, and then six vile judgments, okay? So there, and there's parentheses after each one of those. I mean seven, I'm sorry. There's six and then an extra, so it's seven. Um, but as you go through those judgments, you see these chapters that are kind of stuck in between. So it's not totally chronological straight through Revelation, but it does give us a chronological recording of what's going to happen in the end times if you take this in accordance with other parts of Scripture. Okay, So we understand the tribulation happens after the rapture of, of the church. During the tribulation, there's seven years, the first three and a half years, we have certain judgments that happen. And then the midpoint happens at three and a half years, and that's when the Antichrist will <clears throat> abolish all other worship and cause all the world to worship him. He will set up an abomination of desolation in the temple, and there's a lot that happens. He'll break the treaty with Israel. That's at that three and a half year mark. So there's a chronology there. And then in the last three and a half years, there's going to be major persecution against all believers, especially against the Jews. They will flee to the place of refuge. God will protect them. God will take care of them. At the end of that time, they will cry out to Christ that we saw last week. They will repent as a nation, the remnant of the nation Israel. Christ will return, destroy the enemies, and here we are at chapter 20. Okay, so there's a chronology here, and we accept that because the Bible shows us step by step this is what's going to happen because we take a literal approach to Scripture. In the 1,000-year the, the, uh, of the Millennial Kingdom, this will be a new earthly government. Now, we understand that because Christ has now come back to earth. He's destroyed all other governments and military on the earth, and now he's setting up a kingdom on the earth to rule the people on the earth. And I repeat that phrase because I want us to understand this is a physical kingdom on the earth. Not everybody believes that. Okay? But during this millennial kingdom, in this new earthly government, the remnant of Israel, who were now all redeemed, remember last week, at the return of Christ, will be an exalted people who will receive all the physical blessings that God has promised them through their history at this moment. Now, we can look back, and there's several covenants that God gave Israel that were unconditional. Started with the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, God said, I will increase the nation. I will make them as much as the sand of the sea. I will bless them that bless you. I'll curse them that curse you. You will be my chosen people. Okay, so there's all kinds of promises that God gave Israel there. In the Davidic covenant, God promised David that his throne would be established forever and that there would be a ruler who would sit on that throne to rule the earth forever. That hasn't happened. Israel has not received all the land that God has promised him. Now, I can show you in the Old Testament a physical description of what God said the land should be. They've never had all of it, so that hasn't been fulfilled. It will in the millennial kingdom. So there are lots of promises that God has given to Israel that will be fulfilled during this physical reign on earth by Christ where Israel will receive these blessings that have been promised to them that they never have at this point. And so they will become the exalted nation which God has said they would be. That has not happened yet. I mean, look at the last 2,000 years of Earth's history. Israel has been anything but an exalted nation. They've been persecuted. 
But at this point, the entire nation will follow the Lord. The Bible tells us that as well, and that has never happened before, obviously. So that describes the focus of this 1,000-year kingdom of Christ, that he will reign on earth as Israel's true king. Not just as Israel's true king, but as the king of kings and lord of lords over all nations, over all the earth, over all people. But I want you to put yourself in Israel's perspective, and I'm focusing on Israel for a reason because I want you to understand this. Israel will be returned to their land. And we know, hopefully, if you took geography, where Israel is in the world. Okay, It will be restored to them. What is the capital of Israel? Jerusalem. That is where the temple will be rebuilt during the millennial kingdom. And Christ will rule from the center of the land of Israel. So you see their importance. All the rest of the world will look to Israel for their leadership specifically for Christ, who is the center of that. So Israel is really the focus of the millennial kingdom, with Christ at the very center of that. And I'm not just talking about the people, I'm talking about the land itself as well. And that's how we read in Scripture. If you read all of the millennial kingdom prophecies and descriptions, that's what it tells us. And it's all the promises of God to his chosen people coming to fruition at this time. So that's the premillennial view of Christ's return, that he will come at the end of the tribulation, that he will conquer his enemies, that he will establish a physical kingdom on earth, and that Israel will be the center, literally, as he rules from Jerusalem. Okay? That's the premillennial view of Jesus' second coming. Now, there's a second view. It's called the post-millennial view. This is not as popular as it was once, and I'll explain that in a minute. But this view believes, just as it indicates, that Christ will come at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, you may be scratching your heads going, how can Christ rule for a thousand years if he comes at the end of it? Well, they have an explanation for that, okay? And I'm going to give it to you, whether you want to hear it or not. It doesn't make sense because it's not interpreting the Bible literally. But if you don't interpret the Bible literally, then you can come up with any explanation for any verse or any principle that you want to. Okay, And this view, as well as the third view, are based on what's called an allegorical approach to interpreting Scripture, which means I'm not going to read just what the Bible says and take it at face value. I've got to read into it some deeper meaning. There's got to be symbolism in everything. And so what when it says that Israel will be returned to their land, it doesn't really mean Israel's going to go back to their land physically. There's got to be a deeper spiritual, some other meaning to it, and we got to dig and think and process this until we come up with something to make it work. And that's what this post-millennial view takes, uh, as far as their approach, an allegorical approach, which is that everything in Scripture is symbolic and represents some deeper meaning or some other meaning. Now, this thinking came, and this approach came out of the school of Alexandria, very early in church history. It was propagated specifically by a man named Origen, and he was an early Christian scholar in the second and third centuries who promoted this idea of There's deeper meaning in Scripture, you just got to allegorize it. Look for some other meaning than what actually is described there, okay? His teachings became very popular and existed even into the Middle Ages, but actually not very long after he published his findings, the church as a whole rejected them and condemned him and burned most of his works. But enough survived that this idea of allegorical interpretation is still in existence today. The problem with allegorical interpretation of Scripture is that instead of taking the Bible at face value for what it actually says, you can read into the Bible anything you want it to say. Okay? So you can basically make the Bible according to whatever you want to believe. That's the basis of allegorical teaching. Now, the people who do this will say, no, 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 that, that's not true. I mean, there is absolute truth, but you have to understand that absolute truth has symbolism in it. Okay, but the question is then, who is to decide what symbolism comes out of what verse? Because if we have, and, and this is the 
the problem, we actually do have scholars and theologians through history who have taken an allegorical approach, and for the same passage of Scripture, they will come up with totally different allegorical interpretations, and then who becomes the authority on which is right and which is wrong? And unfortunately, if you take an allegorical approach to Scripture, it basically leads to relative truth. There are no absolutes. The Bible is not absolute. You can make it say whatever you want as long as you have a good, uh, a good understanding and a good reasoning for what you believe. Okay, But that's where post-millennium is based, in that kind of thinking. So this approach for, of post-millennium um, is that the Bible should not be taken at face value. When you read chapter 20 and it says this is going to happen, there's going to be a thousand years of reign of Christ after he comes back at the end of the tribulation, that's not actually what the Bible's saying. That's what they say. Okay, There's a deeper spiritual meaning. Now, they do believe that Christ will return after the millennium because instead of an actual 1,000-year uh, millennium, they just believe that the millennium is symbolic for a very long time. Okay, And this view, as well as the other view, will, will support that by saying, well, you know, the Bible says in Second uh, Peter that uh, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand, days, a thousand years is as one day. So we can't take the thousand years literally. And that's how they approach this, that Christ will return after the millennium or after a long period of time. And it's during this long period in history on the earth that the earth will continue to get better and better and more spiritual and more Christianized because of the strong influence of the church. Now, when I hear that, my mind personally immediately goes to, have they watched the news lately? Okay, because it doesn't seem like the earth is getting better and better. And, and what we see today has really put a damper on how many people actually take a post-millennial view of the return of Christ, because look at all of what's happening in the world. It's not getting better. This viewpoint was very, very popular during the time of the Industrial Revolution, just before the World Wars. The world was advancing at an amazing rate. Prosperity was growing all around the world. Things were, I mean, uh, education had grown. It was like the, the time of enlightenment. And so there were many people who took this view. Wow, you know, we're getting ready for the return of Christ. Look how great the world is getting. Look how much we're advancing. And then came World War I. So much for a good earth. So much for good people. And then on the heels of World War I, we had the rampant immorality of the Roaring Twenties, and then the Great Depression and World War II in the 30s and 40s. And the people over those 20 years were like, okay, maybe the world isn't getting better. Maybe we're wrong about this. And so this post-millennial view became less popular, and people dropped it because they couldn't see the world was getting better and the church itself, in fact, wasn't getting better. We weren't more unified during those times. The church became more and more splintered and more and more corrupt. So even the church verified that this wasn't the case. All right, so that's called the post-millennial view, that Christ will return after a long period of great prosperity and spiritual growth on earth through the influence of the church. That's not going to happen, folks. But people still hold to that, some. That's the second view. The third view is called the amillennial view. And many people who believed in the postmillennial view didn't want to accept literal translation of Scripture or literal interpretation of Scripture, so they moved to amillennialism. Okay? Now, if you know anything about etymology or word structure, the word amillennial literally means no millennium. And some of you might think, well, how can someone believe in no millennium when you read Revelation chapter 20? Because isn't that a millennium, a thousand years, and six times it says a thousand years in this passage? Well, again, if you look at it allegorically and make an interpretation the way you want to interpret it, you can come up with something else than what the Bible says. Okay? So actually, amillennialists, the third view, does not say there's no millennium. Basically, that the millennium is not a physical, literal 1,000 years, just like the post-millennials, but it's just a long time. 
and that there will be no physical kingdom of, of Christ on the earth. Okay? Now, here's the difference. It's not that Christ is going to return after a long period of time where the earth is getting better and better. That's post-millennialism. Amillennialists believe that the prophecies of the millennial kingdom are being fulfilled now. So you're in the millennium if you are an amillennialist. Christ is ruling on earth if you're an amillennialist. And they explain that by saying, well, it's not a physical kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, and Christ rules on earth through the church. And so we are priests, the Bible says that, and therefore through us Christ reigns on earth. So it's not a physical kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. So you can't take Revelation 20, the first six verses, literally. You have to apply it in an allegorical way and see that Christ is already ruling for a very long time in the church. And he will come back someday, but it's going to be at the end of whatever the church age is. And then at the end, when Christ comes back, we're all just going to go to heaven and that's the end. Nothing else will happen on earth. Now, the problem is what you do with all the references to Israel in the end time. And here's where amillennialists have replaced Israel with the church. Everything that applies to Israel in the Old Testament now is the church in the New Testament. It's called replacement theology. And most amillennialists have to take this position because what do you do with all the promises to Israel that are given in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled? Is God a liar? No, obviously that's not the case. God cannot lie. So how do you explain those? Well, they say all of those promises are not fulfilled physically, but they're fulfilled spiritually in the church. So the church replaces Israel. Israel's done. They're gone. They're pushed aside, no longer to be front and center. And therefore, everything that we read about in the millennial kingdom, as far as fulfillment of promises to Israel, is actually happening now as Christ spiritually fulfills it within the church. That's the amillennialist viewpoint. So all of the judgment, all of the corruption of the tribulation has already been played out in history, okay, way back in the first few centuries of the church. All of that travesty and judgment happened then. And so we're in the millennium, it's just a long period of time, not a literal thousand years. The tribulation's passed, we're just waiting for Christ to come back and end everything, okay? So that's the amillennialist viewpoint. This viewpoint, again, is made extremely popular. It is extremely popular today. I know specific people. In fact, my brother held this view for a while. I don't know if he still does. But it's very popular in Reformed theology. Reformers, and the, the old Reformers, and what I'm talking about are people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. When Martin Luther broke from the Roman Catholic Church, he still believed that Israel was done. In fact, Martin Luther had very derogatory statements against Israel, and I wouldn't even repeat some of the words that he used to describe them in church. That's how negative he was against Israel, because he believed Israel was done, the church is now the center and focus. John Calvin, same viewpoint. And in fact, it's very, it's very popular, this thinking of amillennialism and replacement theology in many Reformed Presbyterian churches, and it's taught by, even recently, by preachers like R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer. Now, I, I don't have a problem with R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer as preachers and as Christians. I believe they were truly saved, but their viewpoint of the millennial kingdom and their allegorical approach to Scripture, I think, has led a lot of people into error, especially because they teach replacement theology. And some will go so far as to mock anyone who does not agree with this and thinks that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ where Israel will be exalted again. So that is really the third viewpoint of amillennialism. It started, didn't start, but it was propagated mainly by Augustine, which is the precursor to the Reformers, John Calvin, John Knox, Zwingli, uh, Martin Luther, they all held to Augustine's teachings very firmly, but it leads to this thinking that Israel's done, and therefore you have to explain all of this stuff away about Israel, and we just make it the church instead, spiritually, not physically. 
So those are the three viewpoints, premillennialism, which we believe Christ comes back, then the millennium begins. Postmillennium, where it's just a long period of time, Christ comes back afterwards, and we all are rejoicing together. And then amillennialism, where there really isn't a millennium, it's just now, and then Christ has come back and we all go to heaven. Now the problem with allegorical interpretation of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 specifically, is that they deny the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Okay, this passage specifically. I told you, there's a lot of other problems with it. And again, their argument is, well, you know, Peter says, a thousand, days is as a day, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years of the Lord. So we can't take anything literally. Except, I want you to go back, and we're going to read this passage again, and I've already pointed this out to you, but I'm going to go down to verse 7, because it's actually repeated again in verse 7, but look at what it says. And I saw an angel from, come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him, how long? A thousand years. Good, you're following along. Verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the, what? thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ, how long? thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until what is finished? A thousand years. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. How long? Verse 7, And when the what expired? Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, what in that passage tells us that there really isn't a thousand years? God repeats that specific phrase 1,000 years six times in seven verses. And I think he does that to help us to understand that when he says 1,000 years, he means 1,000 years. Now, when I said that your view of the millennium and based on your approach to interpreting Scripture is important, let me take it in another direction. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. How many of you believe that God created the world in six days? Okay, Genesis chapter 1, six days. Even in the Ten Commandments, it says, and God created the world in six days and on the seventh rested, and therefore that's the foundation for the principle of the Sabbath. So it's six days. Now let's see, when he gave that to Israel, did he say, well, what I really mean is work for 6,000 years and then rest for 1,000 years, or work for six hours and then rest for an hour? Okay, no, our entire week is based on that principle of the Sabbath in the law where there are six days of labor and one day of rest because that's the model that Genesis 1 teaches us. Now, again, there are people who look at that and they say, well, again, day is as a thousand years with the Lord, so evolution could have happened. God could have created the world over six million years progressively through evolution and then rested. See, your approach to interpreting Scripture determines what you really believe about what the Bible says. And it's not just this passage in Revelation about the Millennial Kingdom. It's everything that's in there. When Christ says, if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery. And you go, well, let's redefine lust. What does that actually mean? Well, I... I think there's an allegory to that, and I can redefine it in a different way. So you actually have to commit it, because the heart, Jesus taught, is what proceeds out, and then it's our actions that will be judged by. So if we don't commit it, it's not a big deal. So you can allegorize anything and make up your own doctrine. And so that's why it's so important when we read Revelation chapter 20 and other passages of Scripture, especially when it repeats 1,000 years, six times in seven verses, we need to get the idea that God is saying, yeah, it's going to be a literal 1,000 years. And all the things that have happened up to that point are literally going to happen. I don't want to be on the earth during the tribulation period because of the judgments that are described in the book of Revelations 
uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 18. I would not want to be alive during that time. And in fact, the Bible tells us the people who are on the earth don't want to be alive either, but God's not going to let them escape. But if you can allegorize that and say, oh, all that judgment is just spiritual. It's, it's you know, oppression from Satan and it's the trials we go through every day. Oh, well, then, you know, the tribulation is not that bad. Yeah, you know, we, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. So it's important that we approach this. And the, the main point I'm making today is this. When the Bible says it's going to be a thousand years, it's going to be a thousand years. Literal one thousand years. Now, premillennialism, or this literal 1,000 years of Christ after the second coming, was the dominant belief in the early church of the first century. All of the early church fathers believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. And I already mentioned Origen. It wasn't until Origen came and started challenging that in the second and third centuries that people started going, oh, is it really 1,000 years? Maybe it's not. And then others, like Eusebius, and then the reformers re- kind of uh, resurrected this idea of maybe it's not literal, but we believe that it's a thousand years. Now, the greater effect of this amillennial or allegorical, allegorical interpretation is that you have problems that you run up against. If you become one of these allegorists, who wants to reinterpret everything and try to see deeper meaning in everything. You know, when, when Jacob dreamed about the ladder, going up to heaven, what did that mean? Oh, we're all, when Jesus comes back, we're going to climb a ladder to heaven. He's not going to actually take us up. Okay, I mean, you can, you can, that, you see what I'm saying. You can get to the ridiculous by using this allegorical approach. Okay, but al- these, these, people who are amillennialists, especially today, and who take an allegorical approach to Bible, will look at Old Testament prophecy. And then they'll look at the New Testament. And one of their arguments is, well, it looks like, even in Jesus' teaching, that the New Testament doesn't take prophecy in the Old Testament literally. And it doesn't interpret it literally. Except the problem is, when they use examples like that, They're missing the point of, especially in Jesus' teaching, when he goes back and looks at that prophecy, he's pointing to the principle there, not specifically the prophecy, because the events are not what's important. Jesus wants us to understand it's not the policies, the things that will happen, the people, it's the principles that are important. And they miss the principle. They want to focus on the specifics and say, well, uh, it wasn't interpreted specifically there or literally there. Well, they miss the principle. Okay, And if we miss the principle, we're going to end up in error. So that's one of the dangers here. So if you take an allegorical approach to Scripture as a whole, you end up with several issues that you have to deal with. First, as I already mentioned, who becomes the authority to say what's right, what's wrong? Everybody has their own interpretation of Scripture. In First, Second uh, Peter 1, it tells us that no, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. And it goes on to say that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, which means, number one, they didn't give just their thoughts, their opinions, their ideas. Nothing in Scripture is some man's idea of what things should be. It's all directly from God through men, but it all comes directly from him. So people didn't write of their own will and say, oh, I think that should be part of the Bible. Second of all, that also says that you can't take what is written then and put your own meaning to it. Who is the best interpreter of Scripture for us? The author, right? And so that's why I say, number one, you always need to interpret Scripture with other Scripture because the Bible's not going to contradict itself. And number two, we have the author in us. The Bible tells us when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, he said, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. He will teach you. Now, does that mean that we just ignore everybody who wants to be a teacher or pastor? No. Okay. Teachers, pastors, evangelists, those are all spiritual gifts that God gave to the church to help the church in understanding. But 
Your final authority for what the Bible says should not come from some commentary or from some famous religious book or even from some pastor that stands up behind a pulpit, including me. The final authority for what the Bible says is God alone. And so the Holy Spirit should be that final element or the first element and final element in your understanding of Scripture that leads you to the truth. Now, I've mentioned that there are lots of different people who interpret the Bible a lot of different ways. When I study, just in, in studying Revelation, I think I've used 20 different commentaries, okay? But I don't rely on the commentaries to say, okay, what is the Bible actually teaching here? It gives me insight, and in many, position, in many points, the, the commentaries don't agree. So then the question is, which commentary is right? Which one's wrong? Which one's close? How do you get the answer? That's the importance of prayer. When we read scripture and we just look at other people's opinions without praying, we're not asking God's opinion. And so the Holy Spirit has to be involved in that process of understanding and interpreting scripture, not just for the learner, but also for the teacher. But it's important for the learner as well. Because if you just take some guy's word for it, then you're as prone to error as somebody who never reads the Bible. So the Holy Spirit is the main one who will lead us into truth. He uses people to do that many times, but the final authority is God. And when God says something, that should be it. So that's the first issue. Who's the authority? What is the actual truth or the right interpretation? Second, when God sent the Bible, did he write it to you specifically? Did God write in one of these books, you know, the the revelation to Jack? Or to Ross, this is the epistle of so-and-so to you. Okay, and I don't want you to get this wrong. The Bible is very personal, should be very personal to all of us, and it applies personally in all of our lives. But when it was written, when the words were written down on the paper or on the papyrus, it was not written specifically to you. The book of Revelation was written to who? Chapters 2 and 3 seven churches, and the churches of Asia Minor. Does that mean it's not applicable to us? No. It's applicable to us because the principles are still valid. How many of you were alive to see the church at Ephesus fail? Happened early in the second century. No, Nobody here? Nobody's that old. Okay, nobody's going to admit to being that old. We don't know. So the book of Revelation, when the angel told John, write these things down and send it to the churches, was not directly given to you or me or this church. It was given to other churches. The principles still are valid for us. But we need to understand when it was written, the culture was different, the environment was different, where they lived was different, how they lived was different. And so it was written in the context of their lives. They understood it perfectly. So as we read scripture, we need to go back and study those people and their culture and understand what they saw and what they understood from the passage, and then all of a sudden the Bible starts to make more sense. Okay? So what did the Bible mean to those people? Let me give you another example. When God gave Israel all of those promises in the Old Testament, was he like, well, here's the promise, but you know, I'm not really going to give it to you. I'm just going to give it to the church eventually. Is that how they took it? Read the Psalms. David took it very literally. The Israelites looked forward to the millennial kingdom on earth 1,000 years. And so if it's not actual, if it's not literal, they have no hope. So the whole Old Testament is worthless. So that's the second one. What did those people who received those prophecies understand them to mean? Third, when you begin to allegorize things in Scripture, but not everything, then you end up with inconsistencies. And I'm going to give you a specific example of amillennialists because they try to explain away the promises. The promises are spiritual. Okay, what about the curses? Because the Israel experienced the curses. Oh, no, they're literal. So the curses are literal, but the promises are only spiritual. Okay, you see the inconsistency that starts to to appear. So there's all kinds of problems, and I'm just touching the surface, but there's all kinds of problems with not interpreting Scripture literally. Now, I should have probably given this message as we started Revelation instead of toward the end of it. 
But understanding a millennial kingdom, because there's such a diversity of, of belief about it, begins with we're going to take the millennial kingdom as literal, 1,000 years. And as we study the millennial kingdom, when we look at the prophecies, we're going to take them at face value and not try to read something else into them. It's not about the church. We will be there. We'll be by Christ's side. We're going to be reigning with him because we're already his bride. But it's not about us. Now, if that makes you feel bad, go do a pride check, okay? Because it's not about you anyway. It's about Jesus Christ. But it will focus and exalt the kingdom of Israel as Christ becomes the ruler of the world, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, physically on the earth, 4,000 years at that time. Now, that's the introduction to this passage, okay? There's three things in this passage, the literal bondage of Satan by Christ and his return at the end, the literal reign of saints with Christ until the end, and the two stages of the literal resurrection one at the beginning and the other at the end. I'm going to let you go have lunch, so you're going to have to come back for that message next week, okay? We'll look at this passage next week in depth and look at the details here, and then we're going to spend several weeks looking at all of the other prophecies, or not all of them, but much of the major prophecy of the Millennial Kingdom, so that we can understand what Revelation 20 is actually talking about, okay? Now I'm going to stop there. So I know some of you just sighed, but that's okay. Come back next week because there's a lot more that we need to talk about. All right, let's have a word of prayer today. Lord, thank you again that you have taught us in your word. Lord, you've given us all the things that we need to understand. There's nothing lacking from your word as far as truth that is important for us. And it's important for us, Lord, to to take it as you've given it to us. We know that there is symbolism in scripture, But, Lord, help us to see the difference and to see those things that are important to take literally, even in this case of a thousand-year reign of Christ. Lord, may we believe that you are physically coming back to this earth to rule and reign as you promised. And, Lord, I pray that as we go about our days ahead, as we go about our activities, as we seek your guidance in our day-to-day activities, that we would seek you in your word first and in prayer trusting your spirit to guide us and to lead us to the conclusions that are correct. And so, Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you've given us everything we need now in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And so bless us now. Thank you again for your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.